raise the bar on health and live with maximum vitality. This is the Vitality Podcast with Andrea Page. Andrea is a Bali-based naturopath redefining health as living with maximum vitality. Tune in for practical life advice and start aligning with what your body wants. Our bodies are trying to talk to us. Let's listen. Welcome, beautiful people. You are here for Monday Night Health Satsang. My name is Andrea. I'm the director of the detox department here at the Yoga Barn. And it is my absolute honor to open this space every Monday night. I've recently renamed the lectures Community Health Satsang. And Satsang is a commitment to truth. It is an opening up to allow some inner part inside of you to be touched by the eternal, the eternal being truth. Traditionally, satsang is a spiritual gathering of community, and these are our community offerings, free classes almost every night at 5.30, in which you're reminded of something you already know. And so that's my intention tonight. Not specifically or directly under a spiritual pretext, but rather under that of health. This is a health satsang. And so welcome to this space. My intention for this space is to empower you, to bring you back to yourself, not to teach you anything or assume that I know anything at all, but rather to share my experience and more prominently my experiments with you and moreover encourage you to do your own. And so I'm recording this lecture. I record a lot of my lectures now to give away for free. And I have some cards up here with a link to my website where you can download these lectures for free online. And my mission, more than anything, is to help people raise the bar on health, where we start to reconceptualize health no longer, merely as absence of disease. Because that's how we've been thinking about health for a really long time. I'm not sick, so I'm healthy. Have you heard that before? My question is, what if there's more... What if there's more to life? What if there's more to health? What if you can feel good all the time? And I often remind people of that feeling perhaps you had when you were, I don't know, five years old, six years old, that endless force of vitality where you woke up in the morning and you were like, Yahoo! What can we play today? What can I create? What does the world have in store for me? That vitality did not die in puberty. In adolescence, it might have seemed like it did when all these real-world responsibilities started to weigh on your shoulders. But how often do you throw them off of your shoulders and just dance for three minutes? You have an experiment right here. You told me that you felt better after our three minutes of dancing at the beginning of class. What if you implanted that into your life every single day? Solo dance party. Put it on your calendar. Three minutes long. You won't even be able to see it. There are small things like this that are so simple that we don't even gift ourselves, And you deserve it. Each and every one of you. I see that we have a gathering of beautiful people this evening. So please, give yourself a little more. That's my first encouragement. So the topic of tonight's lecture is top ten things that your life would probably be better off without. More often than not, I'm talking about implanting things into people's lives. For example, three-minute dance parties, right? Or more water, or pooping more, or more fruits and vegetables. This is what I spend most of my career talking about. But tonight, we're actually going to get into the nitty-gritty, some of the awkward stuff. Some of the things that are normal in society, that it would be much better off if they weren't so normal. And by better off, what I mean by that is... People would be happier. That's number one. Happier, healthier, more whole. Right? There would probably be a lot less war, believe it or not. And somehow life would just be more meaningful than it is at large on a global norm, society. This maya or this illusion of reality that we have. And so, by sharing a list of almost discouragement in a way, my intention is actually to encourage you, to empower you. 
And so please hold me to it. I might forget as we go, but please hold me to it that as we eliminate something, make me suggest something that you can add instead. All right. If I forget, remind me. The format of this is that I'll be speaking for about 40 minutes and then we'll open up at the end for a little bit of questions. I'll tell you that you will leave here with more questions than you came in with. That is the natural byproduct of my teaching and I like it that way because what that means is we've turned on the vehicle of critical inquiry. That you're starting to actually engage with these things and ask deep questions. And I'm not here to teach you any answers. Rather, I'm here to guide you through questions. And again, empower you to ask more questions because that's when you continue on the journey of health in a way where you're in control rather than being disempowered. Because even in the natural health movement today, people are so disempowered. Raise your hand if you've read conflicting information on the internet. <laughs> yeah, just about everyone. That's the nature of things, right? This person says that, that person says that. I'm here to say stop listening to them and do your own experiment because your body has all of the answers. This is the core tenet of any yogic teaching. All of the answers are inside. We just have to stop all of the input, all of the thoughts, all of the assumptions, the opinions, and all the web articles, and just listen. And so that's what we do, for the most part, during the fasting programs that I host here. We have a three and a seven day program, the three day cleanse program and the seven day detox retreat week. That's what I spend most of my time doing here at the Yoga Barn. And during a fasting experience, we get to, again, stop all the input and just stop and listen. It's a deep reconnection to the body in a way which not many humans are afforded today. And so come back, join us for one of those programs at some point in the future, or go on my website, download the do-it-yourself fasting lecture, and try to experiment with these things. It's all within your reach, and it costs nothing. So... Before I go too far, I will uh, continue with exposing my biases. I'm really passionate about the fact that anyone who can stand up here and talk for like an hour, like I'm going to be doing, probably has some opinions, and I'm absolutely no exception to that. And so I make the choice to show you my biases, to expose my cards to you at the very beginning so that, you know, there's transparency and nothing's being hidden. Most of my biases are rooted in natural hygiene, which is the foundation of natural medicine. It's the science of fasting. And natural hygienists, what we do, take one and pass it on for me. What we do at our root is we fast on water for weeks at a time. The human body can thrive and survive for 40 to 50 or more days on water alone. That's not something you were taught in school. And so that just shows you that we have a tremendous capability that we don't tap into. Take one and pass it on. So from there, from natural hygiene, which is essentially the science of health, yeah, I'm a naturopathic doctor, but in that I like to be a doctor of health because the thing is most doctors today are doctors of disease. You notice that? In med school, people go four to seven years studying disease. Right? That doesn't get anyone healthy. You're studying disease and more disease will prevail. Does that make sense? And so I'm a doctor of health. Moreover, I have a master's of science in something called ethnobotany. My specialty in that is gastroethnobotany which is the study of the relationship between people and plant food. So I have a large bias toward plant food. I'm a student of Colin T. Campbell, the author of The China Study. Uh, what else? Biases. I, I'm a clinical iridologist, which means I'm into diagnostics, and that by looking at you, I can tell a lot about what's going on in your body. Don't feel judged. I also look at you and love you tremendously. Okay? Moreover, probably one of the more important biases is that I'm a career colon hydrotherapist and director of the colonics clinic here at the Yoga Barn. And in that, what we understand is that we're simply not removing as much waste as we need to be. And we will get to this in our top 10 things. Constipation is one of the things that we'd be better off without. And with that, I have a large bias toward removing waste. And so that's where my position as director of the detox department or detoxification specialist, comes in. Yeah, those are labels that were thrown on me. I never asked for them. And so we find that, really, uh, we can awaken to a lot more going on in our body than we are aware of on a day-to-day kind of more or less superficial idea of health. And so that's my intention, is to get into some of that depth and to get you reflecting on your own body in a way 
that can send you for years on end on a quest for healing from a very empowered place. All right. So, da -da -da -dum, let's dive right into the list. I will note that these are not in any specific order. <laughs> you saw me write them at the beginning of class. I just kind of wrote them out. And we're going to go through them. So again, this is a list of things that are normal in society that we would be much better off without them being so normal. Is that clear? First one, what does it say? Can you read it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone can read it. Coffee. Coffee. Do I have some coffee drinkers in the house? Yeah, right? Wow, that's actually not a lot proportionally. But I wonder if that's why, because you guys are at the health talk. Coffee. This is where we begin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Coffee. It's one of the most dealt drugs in the world today, along with white sugar, which is also on the list. And what do I mean by drug? I mean stimulant, something that has a chemical effect on the human body. Is that fair to define a drug in that way? A chemical effect on the human body, in this case a stimulant. You can listen to my podcast about energy. It's all about connecting into our own inherent energy. But the fact of the matter is that as soon as we take in any kind of external stimulant, be it coffee, be it Red Bull, whatever it is, be it cocaine, right? that inherently disconnects us from our own internal source of prana, of vitality, of that essence of what you felt when you were five years old and you jumped out of bed and said, Yahoo! And so that disconnection troubles us because then that puts us in a cycle of dependency whereby when we're disconnected from our own inner sense of vitality, we have to rely again and again and again on this thing that we're putting in from outside. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going to start with coffee. Not only is it an external stimulant, but it's a laxative. Have you noticed that? Raise your hand. Who's felt the laxative effect of coffee? I have lots of women often say this, yeah. You drink it, and your body poops quite fast. Some of you might love that, and you think that's really healthy, and you're stoked because of that. But I'm going to explain a little bit more about what's going on using my botany background. Coffee is part of the Rubiaceae plant family. All right? And the Rubiaceae plant family, it is essentially a plant like any other plant, where it has a seed and a fruit, a flowering plant. It has leaves and roots and all of these other parts of herbaceous plants. Coffee as we know it, we call it a bean, right? The coffee bean. Well, actually, all beans are seeds, botanically. And it has a fruit surrounding it. And the bean, the seed, like any other seed, has an endotoxic coating around it, whereby when you take it in the body, it's a slight poison. And the body says, Woo! I don't want that. Whoosh! And it flushes it out, hence the laxative effect. Does that make sense? Yeah? And so, any laxative, whether it's herbal, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's coffee, it's a slight poison to the body. And the body takes it in and says, well, I don't want that, whoosh, and flushes it out. Alright? So, unfortunately, that laxative effect has a bit of, I don't know, let's say a dampening effect upon your own inherent ability to remove waste. Because if it's getting that emergency reject or emergency abort, or what is it when you plummet out of, like, eject, I guess? Yeah? Press the eject and someone flies out of the aircraft, flies out of the body. That's going to destabilize your own natural rhythm of pooping. Yeah? So, moreover, that eject <laughs> needs a lot of water, especially because coffee is in liquid form. And so the effect of this is that one cup of coffee will dehydrate you, more or less, to the effect of one, two, three, four glasses of water. That's a liter to a liter and a half of water flushed out of the body just to flush out the coffee alone. So coffee is also incredibly dehydrating. So we're so far, it's a stimulant, it's a laxative, right? It's disempowering in both of those ways. It's incredibly dehydrating. Moreover, coffee is addictive, right? So again, we're back to the definition of a drug. Right? Who wakes up every morning and says, I just need my coffee, or I can't talk to you until I have my coffee. Right? This cycle of addiction, it's 
Sound familiar? Why would we ever want to be addicted to anything? The whole idea of living for vitality is realizing our wholeness. This is the yogic journey. Realizing that there's nothing that you don't have that you need. That's pretty powerful. And when we re-tap into this vitality energy source here in Swadhisthana Chakra or the Hara, right? we start to say, okay, you know what? I don't need anything. I promised you guys that I would mention something that you could add in in replacement. So something for coffee is like a backbend. Backbends have an effect on your physiology that pumps you up, that gives you that aliveness, that makes you, forces you to take this big... Take it with me. Ready? Inhale. <sighs> this breath, you can even do a backbend right now. Right? And a deep backbend if you were to do that every morning. That would have a tremendous effect, just like your cup of coffee. Moreover, if you were to hydrate, that would have a big effect. Moreover, if you were to go to bed early, that's something that's not on this list that I would put on this list, so I'm putting it as a subcategory under coffee. Going to bed early, waking up early, you'll probably find you have no need for that cup of coffee. Does that make sense? All right, so, so far it's an external stimulus. It's a laxative, both disempowering to the body. It's incredibly dehydrating. It's addictive. Anything that's addictive is taking us away from our own autonomy and our power as a human. Coffee. One of the biggest ones is that it's incredibly acidic. So I'll take you back to high school chemistry. We have this acid-alkaline chart. It goes from 0 to 14. 0 is acidic, 1. 14 is incredibly alkaline or basic. You remember this? Test battery acid at 1, it turns it red, right? Test something like green juice, right? At 10 or 11 or 12, super alkaline. Our human blood is slightly alkaline, roughly at 7.34. It cannot deviate in acidity or alkalinity marginally from this, or else you'll die. So your body's pretty smart, and it loves you, and it wants to protect you and survive. And so it's willing to do whatever it takes to maintain that slight alkalinity of the bloodstream. Coffee, on the other hand, is pretty acidic. Maybe four or even three or two level of acidity. And this is exponential, so that means that six is ten times as acidic as seven, right? Five is a hundred times as acidic as seven. Four is a thousand times as acidic as seven. I'm not a mathematician, so I won't go on, but you get the point. Logarithmically more acidic. Well, at a two or three, right? coffee is so acidic that when it comes into the human body, the body essentially panics. It says, oh my goodness, we have to make sure that this bloodstream stays alkaline. And so what does it do? It scavenges, it scours for some of the most alkalizing minerals it can find. No surprise. One of the most alkalizing minerals in the body, calcium. Where is that found? In the bones. Exactly. And so by drinking coffee, you're actively leaching calcium from your bones to re-alkalize the bloodstream. So I get a lot of 20-something-year-old clients come through my office. Thank goodness that they're waking up to health so young. And I ask the question, and I can ask this to all of you, whether you're 20-something or 60-something, you are currently building your future self. How do you want to be 10, 20 years down the road? Are the decisions you're making now strengthening that future self or literally weakening it? This is a rhetorical question for you to answer with yourself. I have no judgment on what the answer is. Just ask the question. All right. So we have a lot with coffee. Let me see if I'll say anything else. I mean, I want to, I want to mention something compassionate, let's say, about coffee because it is a ritual. It's one of the very last rituals that we have in the modern life today. Traditional society was all about ritual. Balinese society is still very much about ritual. But ritual is something so deeply missing from modern human life, and this is what connects us to routine and purpose and nature. Right? And coffee is one of the last remaining rituals because you get out of bed every morning, you walk downstairs, you turn on the coffee machine, right? or you take a break from work, you go over to the coffee set up at your work, or you go out for five minutes into fresh air, leave your cubicle and go to the, down the street to the coffee shop. And then you have, I don't know, five, ten minutes with that warm cup in your hand, probably breathing deeply. It's time just for you. People know not to bother you or talk to you about stressful things. 
right? This is a ritual. And I really want to acknowledge that and support that, the ritual, that connection, that time off, that break, those deep breaths. Can we just change what's in the glass? I know you're asked out to coffee dates all the time. Almost everywhere that they serve coffee, they also serve herbal tea. <laughs> so, check it out. See how it goes. Ask yourself why you drink coffee. What do you perceive that you need that you don't already have? Because you have a lot more than you give yourself credit for. All right, in the interest of time, I will move on to number two. Read that one. Dun, dun, dun. The big one. Alcohol. Another thing that is incredibly socially acceptable today that we, we would be much better off without. And I just want to start with um, asking you, you know that word? How do you describe being drunk? What is it? In, in, yeah, someone said it. Intoxicated. Intox, intoxication. I'm just going to break that down for you. Intoxication. <laughs> intoxication. You see, does, does that make sense? You hear that? You feel that? We are actively toxifying ourselves. The extent of which, right? Alcohol poisoning, right? Later on, chronic alcohol poisoning, resulting in things like cirrhosis of the liver, our major detoxifier, essentially hardening and dying. <laughs> so we see that alcohol, as it is, does not have a very friendly effect on the body. I think that we can all agree on that. If we're going to just start with basics, I'll let you know that alcohol will have at least double its volume effect in dehydration. Yeah? We'll get on to hydration later on. But also, alcohol is not something that's really seen in the natural world, in the natural kingdom. It's not really seen with any other species besides Homo sapiens. It's something that's not even that old in the scale of time. Where did alcohol come from? Why did we start drinking? Anyone know? No, not because of pubs in England or Australia. But because of monks, believe it or not. Spiritual practitioners, monks, Christian monks in monasteries. They were growing herb gardens out back in the courtyard, right? And they were making tinctures, which is an alcohol submersion of certain plants to take the medical properties of the plant and hold it in the alcohol and then take drops of the alcohol as a tincture to thereby get a liquid form of the medical properties of the herb. One day, some monk took a bit too much and started to get a little funny and noticed that he giggled and he went outside of his normal problems and one thing led to another and it became a norm. Yeah, but this is not something that's historically had any kind of prevalence in long-term human society. When I say that, I'm an evolutionary anthropologist, so I look back millions of years. Right? And this is not something that has had a very positive bearing on our society. Right? Some, there's some things, like when we changed our diet to cope and we started eating certain things like animal flesh and things like that, there are studies that show that that helped with a certain development of our brain, things like that. The starting to drink alcohol did not help with any development of our brain, right? In fact, it kills off brain cells more than anything, okay? And so the hard reflection that we can have on alcohol is what's true today, even though it's so, so normal. Raise your hand if you have friends who drink. Yeah, pretty much everyone's hands should be up, right? Meet me at the pub or let's go out for some drinks or let's have some wine with dinner. Can I bring some drinks over to your house, right? It's normal. What it provides, just like coffee provided the ritual, alcohol provides an escape, an opportunity to get away, to shut down, to close off from the hard realities of life today, literally to run away from whatever it is in your life that binds you. And so my invitation to you since you guys are amazing enough to be in Bali, on vacation, right? Taking time at a yoga studio, coming to a free health lecture, right? Your life is probably pretty good. My invitation to you is why do you need to escape? Or what can you change so that you no longer feel you have to escape? 
That's getting to the depth of it and the crux of it. And quite often when I have people who I work with on these programs, right, I do detox programs. So people don't want to come and detox only to leave and retox. That doesn't really make too much sense. They spend a lot of money, right? And so they leave my programs and they say, wow, my entire life's going to change. Probably my friends are going to change. And as you start to make those decisions to empower yourself to live a more holistic, integral, a life of integrity, you start to attract different people who have values similar to your own. And so again, I want to just say, I'm not telling you to do anything here. <laughs> I'm simply posing questions for you to have a real, deep, honest conversation with yourself. Because that's what life really needs to be about, is this honesty. So, is alcohol just an escape? And I don't mean to undermine your need to kick back and relax. I totally appreciate that. But can... Perhaps, can you find a way to kick back and relax that does not have such a toxicating effect on your body? How about that three-minute dance party? <laughs> right? How about having your friends over for a kombucha party? Right? Or a giggle fest, some laughter yoga, whatever it is. Find another way. All right. Number three thing that our life would be much better off if this wasn't so normal. What's it say? Sugar. White sugar. And I don't mean to be racist against sugar. <laughs> yeah, processed sugar. White sugar. Okay. This is something that I'm pretty sure everyone's had, right? Has anyone in this room never had white sugar before? I really want to meet your mother, if so. Right. So all of us have been exposed to it, and yet this is one of the most, if not the most common toxin throughout the world today. It's in pretty much every processed food. It's in most restaurant items, not only in the dessert column, but also in the sauces, in the main dishes, right? Even in the appetizers, in your salad dressings, in your drinks. White sugar is just about everywhere we could ever imagine. White sugar is one of the quintessential examples I used when I talk about derived or processed foods. Listen in to my food combining podcast if you want to hear more about that. But essentially, this refined substance is not recognizable by the body because it's not the same thing as the sugar cane, as what it is in its whole food form. So when it comes into the body, it results in tremendous amounts of inflammation, excess blood flow to the area, in this case, the digestive tract. Inflammation is the body's healing response. Right? It's sending in the SWAT team, the whoo the sirens trying to help and heal right and so we see that white sugar has a direct effect upon acidity it's very acidic so if we're going to go back to this acid alkaline scale the natural health understanding from this acid alkaline scale since our blood is slightly alkaline the general environment of the human body when it's alkaline it promotes health it promotes probiotics good bacteria when the human body is more acidic, it promotes acidosis, and it's an environment ripe for disease, ripe for parasites, worms, ripe for chronic or acute illness to implant and fester. And so the take-home from that is disease can and will only exist in acidity. Disease cannot and will not exist in alkalinity. Is that clear? It's a really simple tenet. Super simple. So when we realize that white sugar indeed is acidic, that indeed it's to some extent also addictive, right? I'll quote Terence McKenna, a great ethnobotanist of our time. If you want to read more, which I strongly encourage you, his book, Food of the Gods, highly recommended. He discusses sugar literally as the most dealt drug worldwide today. I have one or two podcasts on sugar alone where I even detail the history of sugar throughout the 15 and 1600s when it started to become a byproduct. Again, these are new things. You know what else is a new thing? Escalating rise of diet and lifestyle-related disease. Things like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, autoimmune diseases, and cancer, which simply just weren't here 
100, 200, 500, 1,000 years ago. These are new things. And these are our major maladies of our time. And the work I've done with Colin T. Campbell shows that they're not only completely preventable, but possible and reversible by diet and lifestyle change alone. And so what is that diet and lifestyle change? That's exactly what I'm talking about tonight. All right? So I told you when I would take out something, I would replace it. Sugar, if you're going to take that out of your life, I encourage you to replace it with a natural sweetness. And I'm not even talking about fruit, although I do encourage you to eat way more quantities of fruit, roughly alone on an empty stomach, usually in the morning. Yeah. But replace it with a different kind of sweetness, a fulfillment in your life. Because do you find that after dinner, you just want something sweet? You just want something a little bit more? You just need that little sweetness to finish off your day? Well, what are you lacking? It's the same question that we're asking. Can you find that sweetness in a heart-to-heart connection over a cup of tea with a friend after dinner rather than over a slice of pie? Find that sweetness somewhere else in your life. And if you're needing dessert, it might be because either you're dehydrated or you haven't had enough calories that day. So check in with those things also. Our human sweet tooth is actually an indicator of our natural diet, what we're meant to be eating, a diet of above-ground plants in their natural state, high amounts of fruit. Last week, I gave a talk on raw foods, and that talk I'll soon publish on the podcast. How many of you were here last week? Welcome back. Not too many of you. Welcome back to just the two of you guys. Welcome to everyone else who's new. That's awesome. Uh, full crowd tonight. But yeah, listen up to that podcast. It'll detail more about that. So put sweetness in your life. Next up on the list. Wheat, 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 <laughs> say it, wheat, that's how my grandmother would say it, Beatrice, that was for you, so yes, wheat flour, I'm talking here primarily about commercial wheat flour, but we could extend that to pretty much all wheat flours, so I'll come to you as a botanist and say that the wheat flour that we have today as a plant is very, 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 very different than the wheat flour that we knew 10,000 years ago in Egypt, one of the original wheats cultivated, ekorn wheat coming from Egypt. The plant today is almost nothing like it. And because of that, this plant has been modified. It's been hybridized for generations, millennia, by farmers. But it's also been genetically modified today in laboratory to become pretty much totally unnatural. So commercial wheat flour today is what I call a frankenfood. You know, like Frankenstein, but a food. It's an invention. And the thing is, just like white sugar, this derived food, this not whole food, this foreign food, when it comes into the body, the body doesn't recognize it, and it results in inflammation. Same exact reflex. Does that make sense? All right. So when we talk about wheat, I'm going to tell you why it's a frankenfood. And the thing is that normally wheat, it's a, it's a member of the Poaceae family, the grass family, botanically. Other grasses are things like spelt, things like rye, things like rice, right? You know the grass family. They're growing. And the seed of the Poaceae family are what we call grains. They're meant for birds, which have a pouch in their throat where the seed itself can germinate before they swallow it. Last time I checked, you don't have that pouch in your throat, do you? No? She had to check. I love you. Yeah? You don't have that. And so what do we do? We cook the grain. Yeah? And as we cook it, the starchy inside explodes, and we eat it, and it breaks down as a sugar in the body. This is what we call a complex carbohydrate. So the grass family, the Poaceae family, the seeds of it, when they're cooked, and we call them grains culturally, right? There is no botanical definition for grains, mind you culturally, it's a definition, we find that roughly, like any other whole food, they have a macronutrient ratio. Macronutrients are fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. You've probably heard of that. That's not surprising. Any whole food will have a combination of all three, which means that a mango or a melon or a piece of spinach has protein, has carbohydrate, and has fat in it. Spinach has fat in it. Can you believe that? Don't worry. It's not going to make you fat trace amount, but it has fat in them, okay? Any whole food has all three. 
right? Grains are no exception to that. And so when we look at a grain, roughly, it's mostly carbohydrate. That's why we call it a carbohydrate. It's roughly 80% of its calories come from carbohydrate. 10% or less from protein and 10% or less from fat. I don't want to get too technical. I see some people are checking out when I get technical, all right? What I'm going to tell you is that most grains, things like rye, amaranth, right, things like rice, they have about 8 or 9% protein by carbohydrate ratio, right, or by caloric ratio. When we look at commercial wheat today, it has almost 90% protein. So I just said normally 8 or 9% protein. Commercial wheat today, 90% protein? That's super different. That's really, really different. In fact, even things like the flour that's used to make bagels, it's called high-gluten wheat flour, 95% protein. So gluten, this buzzword, you've heard of it? Gluten, gluten-free diet, gluten-free this, gluten-free that, yeah. Gluten is the protein composite in wheat. It's the protein. So 90%? Protein versus eight or nine, no wonder your body's going to react to it and say, what the hell's going on? <laughs> Makes sense, huh? And so, we have a Western medical intolerance called celiac disease. Right? But the thing is, I'm quite passionate about the fact that we are one species. We are way more similar than we are different. We are almost genetically identical by DNA. And so... When one member of our population's body says, uh-uh, that's not okay, it's a message to the rest of us. So things like gluten intolerance, right, or even lactose intolerance, these are messages to humanity. These are not for specific people. And because this is such a frankenfood, it results in inflammation, and it's resulting in unnatural formation of our human bodies. So I want to, I have to go on, but I'm just going to give you this classic example of what I call the Santa Claus body. Has anyone ever seen, usually a man, usually somewhere in middle ages, where their arms and legs are completely normal and then they have this thing on their belly where they look like they're nine months pregnant? <laughs> anyone know someone like that? Maybe your dad? Yeah? Bless him. Well, we find that that guy isn't fat, even though he says, I'm packing on the pounds, right? Or the kilos. Or the stone, right? He's not fat. If he were fat, you would see it in his face. You would see it in his arms. You would see it in his legs. It would be proportional gain. What's there inside of his belly? Any guesses? Come on, what, what organ? Your intestines? Listen in to my podcast on the digestive system. You guys should have known that answer. You did, but you didn't say, right? Right here is your intestines. Small intestine, large intestine. All right, listen to the lecture. Anyway, so the intestines... That's what looks like it's nine months pregnant because the intestines have literally swollen. They've swelled up, excess blood flow to the area, inflammation, the body trying to heal itself because we have this constant exposure to these frankenfoods, to these derived foods, things like sugar and wheat flour, right? What do we call this? A gut, a beer belly? Beer, what is beer made out of? Wheat flour? All right, we're starting to connect things. So something that our world would be much better off without, commercial wheat flour, gluten. And so perhaps you haven't entertained the thought of a gluten-free diet because you think it would be super inconvenient, but I want to encourage you to do an experiment. And all it takes is about 15 days of absolutely no gluten. You have to be really serious about it if you're going to be an experimenter, a scientist in the living laboratory of your body. You have to be careful. So things that have gluten that you wouldn't expect, things like soy sauce. Right? They have wheat flour in it as a thickening agent. So for two weeks only, just be really, really, really strict. Make sure you take in no gluten. And then after the two weeks, have a piece of bread and see how it makes you feel. See if your face gets puffy or if your belly puffs out. Best time to do experiments is usually after a fasting program because then you have this flat-out basis, this clean slate off of which to work. So what does this mean for you? I mean, be conscious of gluten and maybe how it makes you feel. There are two really good books that I recommend. One's called Wheat Belly. The other one's called Grain Brain. Yeah, these are New York Times bestsellers. So this is becoming more of a common conversation today. Do your own research. What to replace instead of gluten? I don't know. I'm a really big fan of buckwheat. Farine <laughs> Saracen. All right.
So next up from there is stagnancy. Thing that you would be better off without in your life. Lack of movement, stagnancy. We are super, super, super stagnant as a society. That's emotionally, right? That's in the digestive system. That's in our blood and lymph circulation, the hydration in our body, right? That's in our communication with ourselves and others. And more than anything, that's in our body. And so stagnancy. This is literally congestion, and it's creating diseases of congestion. I have a whole lecture on congestion, which I, I, don't, I don't know if it's posted on the podcast yet, but I can post it, and you can listen in. When I gave that lecture on congestion, the whole audience was like, it was the worst audience that I'd ever had. I'm sorry if anyone listening was in that audience. But like, they were just so like in it, congested. And actually, my friend Nicole back there, it was last year, she reflected back to me. She was like, maybe they were like that because you titled the lecture Congestion. <laughs> right? So that was, that was why. So listen up for that one. But essentially, what is the antidote to stagnancy? Movement. Yes! Movement! Yahoo! Movement! So we're back to the three-minute dance party. All right, enough said. That also means walks in the park. That also means playing with your kids or your nieces or your nephews, walking your dog. That also means doing cartwheels for no reason or handstands. Right? That means just get up, put your hands over the he- over the head, put your head below your heart, lift up your legs, jump from side to side. Right? That took you five seconds. If you're at home listening to this, go back, <laughs> rewind, and do the hokey pokey. <laughs> right? That's all it takes. Yeah. So stagnancy is so normal. It's it's really normal in society today to go to bed without having moved. And I'm not even saying fitness or get a personal trainer or anything like that. I'm just saying use your body. And the thing, probably the biggest antidote to this, and I don't only say this because I have a bias, I'm a yoga teacher and yoga teacher trainer, but modern vinyasa flow is an exercise art with body connection to breath, connection to inner strength, power, bandha, connection to drishti, focus, concentration, meditation. And that serves us up a platter of lymphatic drainage and increased circulation benefits to the physiology that have been unforeseen in modern human life today. And so, try out a vinyasa flow class. It's nothing else that moves you up, down, forward, backward, side to side, like that. There's just no other movement like that. Not even gymnastics. It's different. Okay. Next up on our list. Things that you would be much better off if they weren't so normal. Dehydration. So this is a big one, guys. All right, this is our excuse to um, take a sip of water. If you have some water, take a sip. Awesome. All right, if you're at home, take a sip of water. Yes. I have gotten more and more confident in my practice over the past year to say that I truly believe that most maladies at their root stem from dehydration. (laughs) The thunder gods speak. (laughs) Well timed, thank you. Right, Uh, We're receiving hydration on the earth right now. May you receive hydration into this body as well. It's raining here in Bali. Ah, This is something that can manifest in stiff, sore joints, in lack of clarity in the mind, in just a general feeling of unease or unwellness. This can manifest as tightness or tension in the muscles or the bones, inflexibility, constipation, right? Just a general sense of like angst or unhappiness. Could be dehydration at its root. Arthritis, for sure. Cognitive disorders, speech impediments, right? Dry mouth, bad breath, anything having to do with toxicity in the body definitely has a root in dehydration because water is the river running through us. It's what cleanses us regularly. The human body uses and loses how much water every day? Three liters. Just by getting out of bed, through breathing, through sweating, through peeing, through your inner metabolic functions, the body uses and loses three liters. Hold up your bottle. Two of those, right? Three of these. Most of you don't replace it with that much. And the thing is that that dehydration happens day after day after day after day, there is no reset back to hydration until you go on something like a fasting program where you're not doing anything dehydrating 
and you're only rehydrating. I just can't pump fasting programs enough, can I? (laughs) But seriously, guys, this is the reset button, and most of us humans on Earth today could use a reset. All right, so dehydration, headaches, constipation, right? One, two, three, cured. I love it when the staff, now, I mean, I've been working at the yoga barn almost three years, and our housekeeping staff, the amazing, amazing people who go around with the brown shirts on, they're responsible for turning on the lights, taking care of the yoga mats, preparing the rooms for you, right? They do all the things behind the scenes that you don't often acknowledge. So next time you see one of them, smile or say hi, because they are all incredibly lovely people, and they're most of the reason that I still work here, because they are just beautiful. So the housekeeping staff, anyway, when they're sick these days, they tell each other to come talk to me, right? So I always get them coming up and saying, Andy, I, I just, I, Saki Kabbalah, I have a headache today, right? Or I'm feeling sick, or I'm feeling hot, fever, or flu, or whatever it is. And so what do I say most of the time? Go drink four glasses of water. And they say, huh? And I say, no, don't talk to me until you go drink four glasses of water, right? Go drink four glasses of water and then go squat on the toilet and poop. They love when I say that because then they giggle because it's like that's not common conversation. But then often they come back an hour later, usually after I teach the yoga class, and they're like, Andy, I I feel better. Thank you so much. So do that to your friends and family. Hydration. Irreplaceable. Humongous difference. That alone could change everything. Three liters of water per day on an empty stomach, most of it in the morning, liter to a liter and a half before you even think about the word breakfast. All right, from there, next thing that is socially acceptable, normal in our world of today, that we would be much better off without constipation. Right, you saw that one coming. So I just want to make clear that your definition of constipation is likely quite different than mine. Yours probably has something to do with like, mine's a little lighter than that. Mine is based upon what a healthy, normal working body does, how it eliminates. And so how many times are we supposed to poop? Yeah, once per meal per day. That should also be a newsflash to most of you. The human body is meant to be pooping once per meal per day. Something comes in, something goes out, just like babies, just like dogs. Yeah, just like a juicer or any other kind of machine, something goes in, something goes out. If it doesn't, it results in congestion, right? We already talked about that one, and constipation. And so uh, I have lots of different lectures on pooping. Perhaps that's the digestive system lecture, so go listen to that if you're, you want to hear a whole hour on pooping. I love talking about pooping. Now's not the time because we're almost out of time. But uh, we would be much better off if it wasn't socially accepted that once a day was normal. Because the thing is that average transit time, which is the amount of transit time from mouth to anus, from when you eat something to when you poop it out, this is data from like 15 years ago from North America, 70 hours, seven zero. that's like three days. Once every three days. I just told you it's supposed to be three times a day. So the fact that we have escalating rise in disease is no surprise. So pooping more. Yeah, pooping more. And I have a big list of how to poop more. Listen in to my other podcasts for that. Next up on the list, vegetable oils. And this is one that I will probably do an entire lecture on quite soon. So come back in the coming weeks or tune into the podcast. Um, processed vegetable oils. Things like, ready? Canola oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil, rapeseed oil, peanut oil. Right, the list goes on. When you read vegetable oil, commercial vegetable oil, what is that? That's a mix of the cheapest oils on the market today, all mixed together. That's what vegetable oil is. I think I left corn oil off that list. I would also add that. Wow. These are oils from usually the seeds of plants that are not meant to be eaten by the human body. A really common one is like canola oil. Canola oil. Where did that come from? Canola oil, rapeseed oil. This oil is uh, from World War II. It was used to oil machinery. Canola comes from the Canadian Oil Company. That's where the name came from. It was an oil used to lubricate machinery. World War II ended, right? The great old military-industrial complex. 
And we said, oh my God, but we have all of these crop fields full of plants to grow the seed for canola oil. What are we going to do with all of this excess product? Feed it to the people. <laughs> Feed it to the people, that oil that's used to oil machinery. Oh my goodness. So this very unnatural oil, highly processed, hydrogenated, right, or partially hydrogenated, even worse, we find is a very, 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 very inflammatory substance on the human body. Yeah, this is one of the biggest things that is super common. I mean, if you've eaten at a restaurant, you've eaten processed vegetable oil. If you eat at a restaurant tonight, likelihood is you will eat processed vegetable oil. And I get people all the time who say, oh, no, I don't take in that stuff. I only have olive oil and coconut oil at home. Well, do you eat at restaurants? Yeah, because they're looking out for the bottom line, for the cheapest scenario. And the cheapest scenario is quite often that oil that we use to lubricate machinery. So uh, be aware of that. When you go to a restaurant, ask the restaurant what oil they cook with. That's super powerful. Ask them if they have a different oil, something that's from usually a fruit right? or a high-quality seed, things like coconuts, avocado oil, olive oil. These are oils that are a little bit better, less processed, right? Cold-pressed is best. But the thing is that, guys, oils in general are one of the most commonly consumed unwhole food, unwhole food, processed food. Right? We think oils are so healthy. Right? The good fats and the healthy oils. It's a processed food. It's 100% fat. You see that? So more on that in other lectures. But anyway, vegetable oil. Um, it's something that uh, two or three years ago, I don't remember, I made a commitment on New Year's. One of my New Year's resolutions was to no longer eat vegetable oil, to make that commitment. And it's hard. Trust me, it's not easy. There are only a select few number of restaurants I'll go to in Ubud now. They're only ones that cook with coconut oil. Okay? And it's very, 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 very specific. I have the list. You can write me later if you want the list of recommended Ubud restaurants. I'm coming out with a map uh, of my recommendations, not only in Ubud, but all over the world. So stay tuned on my website, liveforvitality.com for that. So processed vegetable oils. And I'll tell you one of the biggest results in that is a tremendous change in the shape of my face. Right? It went from inflamed and puffy. You can look at pictures of me 10 years ago, even 5 years ago, and the shape of my face has changed by simply not eating processed vegetable oils. That's pretty significant. Right? Do your own experiments. Don't listen to me. I'm just sharing mine. All right, second to last. Things we would be much better off without. And this is a big one. Individualism. And this is crazy because you're like, well, I love my independence. I love living alone in my apartment with my cat. Right, or my 14 cats. <laughs> Individualism. We have gone globally in modern society, and I can tell you this as an anthropologist, from a collective basis, whereas when we look at any traditional culture, it's a collective culture, right? In family units. Often you live in one house. You're supported. We can look at the Balinese family compound for that. When you get married, you move in with your husband's parents. Right? And it's all about family. It's all about that group culture. And there's a big social risk network. There's a big network of support. There's a lot of communication and sharing and common identification that goes on. There's a lot of headaches, too, I know, if you have a mother-in-law. Right? But that essence of collectivism is something that we've greatly lost in modern society today. We go off as lone wolves. We go into the corporate world and we compete. And what this does is it inherently activates a part of our autonomic nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, the flight or fight response. When we have that feeling of being all on our lonesome and no one understands, right, that actually has a physiological effect in the body which is correlated with disease. Because healing, which is rebuilding, which is healthy, which is the body constantly replicating itself and getting younger every day, that can only happen when the parasympathetic nervous system is turned on. That's the opposite side of the autonomic nervous system. That's the relaxation or the rest and digest response. And so this individualism activates a need to fend for ourselves because we don't have a gang behind us to fight for us. 
So this individualism, which is so acceptable in society today, we would be much, much better off without. What's the antidote? Community. Community. And so my invitation to you is to say where and who is my community. Where am I with people where I feel unconditional love? Where I feel that support? I feel like I can just lean back and not have to censor myself or fight for myself. Because I am inherently loved and looked out for and fought for. And that has a medical effect on the human body. All right, last one. You ready? What did I leave for last? Uh-oh. <laughs> Ignorance of probiotics. Here we go. So now we're going to talk about world peace. <laughs> Ignorance of probiotics. And then I have slash antibiotics. Things that it would be much better off if they weren't so normal in the world of today. Antibiotics. Antibiotics, I know, they can do tremendous amounts of good. When you're at a breaking point and there's a super bug in your system or whatever it is, or you're about to die, one, two, three, the antibiotic, and you're saved. Well, let's prevent us from getting to that point of crisis. Let's rebuild the natural community, coming off of the last point, within us. And this natural community within us is flora. It's the microbiome. It's the good bacteria or pro-life, probiotic, pro-life. It's the microorganisms inside of your intestines that support a healthy moving digestive tract that'll eliminate constipation, that support a strong immune system that'll eliminate disease. And these probiotics are also proven to boost brain health and to literally make you happier. Wow. So not only is our human gut deficient in probiotics today, but the earth gut, mama earth, is also deficient in its microbiome. Right? Our soil is deficient, and thus our food is deficient. So things like composting for the earth are also going to enrich our own gut. And so there's a whole other podcast on this. I'm just referring you out to other podcasts because we could talk here for 10 hours and it wouldn't be enough. Uh, I think podcast episode number eight is on the microbiome. I had a special guest that evening, the founder of Key for Life. Um, and so listen in on that. It's a really great one. And learn a lot more. But we would be much better off without the frequent, I'll be clear, without the frequent use of antibiotics. Because what antibiotics do are that they kill not only the bad bacteria, but also the good bacteria. They wash you out. They essentially rape you of life antibiotic against life. Right? And that doesn't leave you very strong afterwards. And so, before reaching for the antibiotic, after your next cold or flu or whatever it is, take a second and step back and say, do I really need this? Perhaps I can fast instead. You can. You can. You totally can. I love you. You can. Or maybe every day of my life I can have probiotics, not only in pill form, but also in food form. That's the more important form. It's the guaranteed digestible form. Yeah. Okay. So that completes our list of things that we would be much better off without them being normal in the world of today. Thank you for engaging in that escapade with me. Um, yeah, that's a pretty big list. How do you feel about that? I don't like telling people that not to do things. I'm not telling you not to do things, right? I'm just mentioning things in society. Let's take a deep inhale. Exhale. Ah. Don't think I need to change my whole life or I have to do this. There's nothing you have to change. All of this is just about creating more awareness and more depth of connection with what we actually are and who we are and what we do. All right, so we have a few minutes. I mean, we're already over time, but maybe we can have one or two questions. And the house is dead. <laughs> yes. Um, you mentioned about antibiotics um, having like a washing you out effect, like essentially washing out your life force. What's your opinion on overuse of colonics? And is that a washing out effect stimulus? Yeah, cool. So this is a really common question that I think I also answered in the digestion lecture. Um, but I'll totally answer it now. And I'm just going to make a mention of what colon hydrotherapy is before answering this question, just in case anyone doesn't know. Um, colon hydrotherapy is one of the, if not the, most effective ways to detoxify the tremendous amounts of toxins 
that we've held in our body as modern humans today. There is literally nothing else that I've found in 15 years of searching that can have such a profound effect in 20 to 40 minutes, right? like detoxing one year of your life, than colon hydrotherapy. All the time we have clients come into our clinic who have a headache or they're undergoing chronic constipation or this or that, or maybe they're depressed or they're fighting with your boyfriend or their mother-in-law, whatever it is, they leave the clinic and they're like, I feel so much better because what are you doing? Literally and figuratively, you're letting go of a heap of shit. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. That's emotional as well. That's energetic as well. Okay. I'll make a mention on colon hydrotherapy, even though I'm a colon hydrotherapist and a big proponent of colonics. I strongly recommend you guys get a colonic if you've never tried one before. Don't believe me. Verify me. Try it out for yourself. Colonics here are at least half the price of where they are, of how much they are back home. Um, And we have one of the best clinics in the world, and I don't say that because I'm the director of it. I say that in a very frank, honest way. I think um, our amazing colon hydrotherapist, Heidi, has some spots open tomorrow. Last time I checked, I think she had three, so maybe three of you can get lucky. You can check in with reception afterwards on that. Um, And when I recommend colonics, I'm not recommending all colonics. I have a hard job as a colon hydrotherapist because I actually don't recommend about 80% of colonics out there. Anything that is machine-based, where you have a machine pumping water into the body, it's like having a garden hose up your bum. There's risk involved. There's a potential for danger. What we have here is a gravity-based system. So if you're going to get colonics elsewhere, I only recommend that you only work on a gravity-based system. Yeah? It's only the power of gravity bringing water into your body. If your body says, no, the water stops, (laughs) that's so important. That gentleness is so important. Moreover, the reason why we have one of the best clinics in the world is because we practice something called the Woods Method. And it's a very uncommon method to find. But Wood's method of colon hydrotherapy is very intentional. It not only goes to detoxify, but it's a true therapy. It restabilizes the large intestine, the colon, rebuilds the bowel. We're building the musculature to make you stronger after the colonic. And we have pretty empirical evidence supporting this claim that we strengthen, right? Because after a full series of colonics, you're pooping three times a day, no question. Restabilizing the bowel. And then the third intention of Woods Method Colonics is to get to the far end of the bowel, the cecum, and wash out the toxic waste matter there. And that's the part where I said, I've seen nothing that can get as much done in a short period of time as with Woods Method Colonics Therapy. All right, so try it out. But a common, common criticism of colonics is that that wash of water into the large intestine is said to take away good bacteria, beneficial bacteria. So... My question back to that is that the the thing is that inside the colon, you have epithelial tissue. It's skin. It's internal skin. It's just like your external skin. And you're washing your external skin all the time, right? You take a shower all the time with water. Some of you even use antibacterial soap on your skin. Are you worried about washing away your probiotics there? The good bacteria. So the good bacteria on your external skin is very similar to the internal Moreover, a few things to think about. If someone actually does have healthy flora in their large intestine, which very few people have strong, healthy bacterial colonies in their large intestine today, that's just the nature of the world, those colonies will be so far up into the folds of the large intestine that a few simple washes of water back and forth will not disturb them because they're deeply rooted in there. More, more, moreover, a modern, current, Really new research is showing that perhaps the seat of probiotics, the origination point of good bacteria in the body, is actually the appendix, which is big news, right, as appendectomies hit their all-time high about 10 years ago. And if this is indeed the birthplace of probiotics, oh my goodness, but the water of colonics doesn't get all the way to the appendix, so we wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't get to the seed of the probiotics. So even though this is a common concern, I would say that it's not actually doesn't have very much grounding or validity. Does that answer your question? Awesome, gorgeous. All right, maybe one more. Anything really? Yes, love. No, I definitely said eating a lot of fruit is a fantastic idea. It's a fantastic idea. It's a fantastic, keep doing it. Yeah, so fruit is meant to be eaten alone and on an empty stomach. One of my many campaigns is fruit for breakfast. 
so listen to the lecture on food combining, and I'll take an hour and explain all of that to you. Yeah? You're beautiful. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our time together this evening. Remember, you don't have to change anything at all. Just become more aware. Apply this to your life. Get excited about this. Realize that you have your entire lifetime to become even more amazing, even more vital, and even more of who you truly were born to be. So come and stay in touch. I have a mailing list on my computer. I send out free yoga classes and uh, these lectures and things like that. If you want to stay in touch with me, please come and leave your email here. I also take uh, requests for new topics, for lecture topics, or comments, feedbacks. Come put your name up here. Um, we also have the cleanse program starting again tomorrow morning, and then next week, Monday and Tuesday as well. And our next detox week is in June, and... There's some colonics appointments available. I don't know. You'll have to check with reception and say goodbye to your neighbor who you met on the way in. And I love you and I'll see you next week. Good night. Incredible people. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Remember, you don't have to change anything right away. Simply become more consciously aware. Tune in next time for more interpretations of our body signals. And don't forget to reprioritize your life around your health to live with maximum vitality.